It took them two, over 200 years to build it. Imagine the foresight, the commitment, the vision to construct something like Notre Dame, to have the idea that you'll start something but you'll never get to see it completed. In fact, your children's children's children wouldn't even see it finished. Imagine the commitment to the sacred, to, to building this holy, solemn part of the center of your community as a testimony to majesty and to glory and to art and to beauty and to worship. And think of the role of that in the middle of that community, and then just one day, the fire comes and the destruction begins. I don't know about you, but when I was seeing the images that were unfolding this week of the fire on the outside of Notre Dame, the image of the spire that was on fire and collapsed, the picture of the cross being surrounded by flames, and in the aftermath on the inside of Notre Dame, the pictures of the rubble on the inside, even the very front of the altar in the midst of rubble. But the most captivating pictures for me were not of the building itself, but of the faces of the Parisians who had come to gather to sing, to pray, the look of shock, of dismay, of hopelessness, the very heart of their community burning and crumbling before their very eyes. This is the closest analogy that I can think of to the way that God's people might have experienced and seen the first century, the defining moment for both Jews and Christians alike in 70 AD was the destruction of the Jewish temple. The Jerusalem temple had served as the place, as the center where heaven and earth meet one another, where God's people were uniquely called together to worship, and God himself was said to uniquely dwell the Romans had had enough of it, and they come in and they lay waste to the city. And unlike Notre Dame, it's not an accident. Unlike Notre Dame, there's not a commitment and a hope of rebuilding on the other side. No stone is laid on top of one another, and there will be no rebuilding of this place of worship again. Whatever it is that is the sacred center of your life, Imagine that thing crumbling to dust. And for you, it's probably not a building. For you, it might be a hope or a dream, a career or a relationship, but something that you put at the center of your life, maybe even your faith itself, and one day it starts to disintegrate. I want to reintroduce you this morning to an important figure in the Bible. His name is the Apostle John. He was the youngest of the disciples that Jesus called. He experienced the glory of that first Easter. He was there. He's the one on the left, the young one in fear and trembling. Don't you love the look of expression? This is one of my favorite Easter portraits of Peter's expression of, oh my goodness. The Apostle John heard the voice 
He saw the face. He felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. He knew that the unthinkable had actually come true. And yet the decades that followed were an incredible challenge to him and to the early Christians. Here's another portrait of John towards the end of his life. Persecution has been the pressing reality for all of those followers of Jesus. Emperor Domitian comes to power, and in one year, he killed 40,000 Christians. Peter has been killed. Paul has been killed. James has been killed. Thomas has been killed. The rest of them have all been murdered. And here he is alone in an exile and on an island, separated from the ones that he loves. The churches are in disarray. And he's wondering to himself, whatever happened to Easter? Was the promise all for nothing? And in that moment of his isolation, God comes to John in a vision and gives him a picture that enables him to go on. The Apostle John writes this. He said, then I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look now, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. You know as well as I do that the one who holds the keys is the one who's in charge. Back when we used to live in California, we had this kind of old beat-up minivan that we referred to as kind of our Cheerio car because we didn't care if there were Cheerios in it. We didn't care that there were goldfish shoved down into the crevices of the seats. We didn't care that as you cleaned it out, you could find stray M&Ms. If I found a stray M&M, it's not beneath me to eat it because those things are indestructible and they're always delicious. (laughs) It was really helpful for us to have a designated car that you would drive carpool in It was helpful to have a car that you would do road trips in. It was really helpful to have a car that when the grandparents came to town that they could come and they could drive that car. And and, and I got to tell you, I don't know how we would have made it through those early childhood years without the blessing that has been our grandparents. And for one person in particular, Kelly's mom, her name's Nana. She's here in the service right now. Nana, we refer to her as Mary Poppins. She has like magical powers with regards to children. And one of her superpowers is that she collects keys and she hides them in places that not even she knows where they are. (laughs) So the conversation would go like this. Hey, Nana, can I have the keys to the minivan? 
And Nana would be like, I don't have the keys to the minivan. I was like, Nana, can you open your purse? And she's opening a purse and she's like, I don't have the keys. To- oh, wait, there they are. <laughs> One time, Nana went back home to Florida. She took the keys of the minivan with her and she had to mail them back to us. Magically, UPS, they appear. One time she went back to Florida and she took both sets of minivan keys with her. We couldn't move the minivan, couldn't open the minivan. Children running around without car seats because Nana left with the keys. The one who has the keys is the one in charge and Nana is the one in charge. The one who has the keys to your house is in charge of your house. The one who has the keys to your heart is in charge of your heart. The one who has the keys to your life is in charge of your life. And you may wonder where your keys are and you may be guessing as to where the keys are and you may think you know where the keys are, but the book of Revelation says that there's a particular set of keys and that Jesus has the keys, not just any keys. He has the keys to death and even hell itself. Jesus, like Nana, he's in charge. There's a true story of a group of seminary students who loved to play basketball on a Saturday night. And so they would get together and they would go to the high school gym and the custodian was there while they were playing basketball. And when the custodian would have a break, they would notice that the custodian wasn't watching them play basketball. The custodian had his Bible open and he he was reading his Bible. And all these students that were training for pastoral ministry, one day they came over, the curiosity got the better of them. They're like, what are you reading? And he's got his Bible open. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And one of the seminary students kind of in a condescending and snarky tone said, and do you understand what you're reading? And the janitor said, I think I got it. And the seminary student, well, what is it that you think that it means? He looked at his Bible and he said, I think it means that Jesus is going to win. It's kind of a drop the mic moment on a seminarian right there. You might think that the disappointments in your life are going to win, but no, 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 Jesus is going to win. You might think that the despair that you're experiencing in your life right now, it's going to win, but no, 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 Jesus is going to win. You might think that the death or the separation is going to win, but no. Jesus is going to win. A group of pastors, we were getting together recently, and we were talking about what we were all going to preach on for Easter. And, uh, you know, this is exciting stuff that pastors do behind closed doors. And so what are you preaching? Oh, I'm preaching on the gospel of this, and I'm preaching on this. And there aren't many surprises. And they turn to me, what are you preaching? I'm like, I'm going to preach on the book of Revelation. And they're like, you're really weird. We're kicking off a six-week series starting today on the book of Revelation. And they're like, people don't, normal people don't do that, pastor. But I think we need to. Because I think John's experience is a lot like your experience. It's a lot like my experience. And that, that you've come to Easter and you've heard the Easter promises. You've heard the Easter story. And you're like, I think I got it. I think I've encountered it. But then time starts to pass and the decades flow and you see what's going on in the world and you look at the injustice and all the struggles that we face and you wonder if those Easter promises are really legit. Are they still valid? What scholars refer to it is they refer to it as the great delay. That there's a delay between what happened and was announced and inaugurated on that Easter day and the way that there's some time that happens before the 
before the restoration, the fulfillment of all of those promises. You and I live in the midst of that delay. The apostle John lived in the midst of that delay. And so maybe like John, you and I need just a little pinprick of a vision. We need to see something. We need to encounter something that helps us to know that we can keep going in the midst of the delay. Even when we see things that we think of eternal that crumble before our eyes, there is still hope. What was it that John saw? Can we talk about that briefly, what he saw? The first thing that he saw were these mysterious lampstands. In the, the book of Revelation tells us that the lampstands stand for the, the seven churches that John knows, that he served, that he loves, and that we think that Jesus has left the lampstands, but when he sees the vision, he sees that Jesus is right in the middle of the lampstands, that, that Jesus is there even when you don't realize it. And the second thing that he sees is that Jesus is wearing a robe, and yet it's not just any robe, it's the robe of the high priest, and it's got this great detail of this, this golden sash across his chest. Well, what on earth does that mean? Let me see if I can explain. In a few hours, you and I are about to do something significant, a part of the celebration of Easter. We're about to eat more food than we should really eat. We're either going to go out to lunch or we're going to cook something at home and we're going to celebrate. This is what Presbyterians do where two or three are gathered in his name, a chicken has died. <laughs> and so if you're anything like me, you're going, to, you're going to stage a little bit of a preemptive strike when you sit down for that meal. You're going to take your belt and you're just going to give yourself a little grace. You're going to, you're going to take it down one notch. The only reason I do that is that my wife won't let me wear sweatpants to Easter dinner. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be wearing elastic because elastic is proof that God loves us. Elastic is grace personified. Elastic is what we should all be wearing. Why are we still wearing belts when God made elastic? <laughs> and so I'll give myself a little bit of grace and I'll, I'll open up that notch on that belt and I'll start the meal, and while I'm eating the meal, I'll start getting tired as I'm making my way through it, but I won't stop, and I'll keep going. And then eventually, as I'm sitting, I'm kind of slumping a little bit, and the one notch in the belt wasn't enough, but, but I'm not going to take out another notch. I have too much pride for that. Instead, I'm going to take the belt, and I'm going to pull it up a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to lean back. I'm going to pull up the belt a little bit, and I'm just going to create some room, and, and then eventually, I'm going to be finished. You're like, what on earth does that have to do with anything? <laughs> the high priest would wear his robe, and while he wore his robe, while he did his work, the golden sash was around his waist. But when the high priest was done, the high priest would sit down, and because of the way that the robe was constructed, there was no way for that to be comfortable. The only way you could sit and be comfortable after you were done is to take the golden sash to hike up the robe and to pull it around your chest. It was the symbol but the work is done. Jesus hasn't left his churches. He's right in the middle of them. And yes, the temple has been destroyed, but we still have a high priest and the high priest's sacrifice was sufficient that the work was really done. And the third thing that we see in the vision is that John sees that Jesus has some strange shoes on, these, these bronze feet. And you're like, what, what on earth does that mean? It means that Jesus isn't going anywhere, that Jesus will remain steadfast. There's a true story from the motherland of Presbyterians that is in Edinburgh, Scotland. It's a true story of a man by the name of John Gray. 
John served as a night watchman. This is back in the 1850s. He would wander the edge of the city and the city gates, and he was in charge of sounding an alarm if something was going wrong. It was a lonely job. It was a nighttime job. He was sleeping when other people were awake, and he, he wanted the companionship while he was working and walking. And so he decided to adopt a little dog, a little terrier, a sky terrier, And that dog went wherever John Gray went. Several years went by, and eventually John developed a terrible form of tuberculosis, and he died, and they buried him, and the dog was there while they buried him, and the dog watched. The dog smelled, watched his master go into the ground, and that dog would not move from that gravesite. They would try to coax the dog away, but the dog couldn't be coaxed away. They would eventually just feed the dog where he was. They would put a little shelter for the dog so that he could stay there. That dog didn't stay there for days or for weeks or for months. Fourteen years, Bobby the Terrier stayed by his master's grave. And if you travel to Edinburgh, you can still see the memorial. You can still see the the little statue that they have in honor of him. People come and they pet his nose to be reminded of the faithfulness, of the loyalty of one waiting for his master. Jesus' feet are made of bronze. He's not going anywhere in your life. And oftentimes in church, we talk about putting your faith in Christ You know, what we often neglect in the middle of that is we forget to talk about the faith of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, His loyalty and His commitment to you and to me. And so there's this image of Jesus amidst all of the people, and He hasn't left them. He hasn't forsaken them, and He's the high priest, and He's done the great work, and that He's going to be loyal in the midst of even the destruction. And then there's this picture of Him holding the seven stars in his hand, that what Jesus does, what is to come, is of cosmic proportions. Back in 2005, we moved to the city of San Antonio. Our kids were really young at the time, weeks old for one, less than two years for the other. I wasn't but a couple of months into the job when Hurricane Katrina slammed the Gulf Coast and particularly devastated the city of New Orleans. Thousands of people in the forms of refugees came to the city of San Antonio, and our church, literally within a week, became a medical shelter and refuge for those who were in need. All of a sudden, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for months, we were housing people that had nowhere else to go, and we provided the medical assistance that they needed. So in addition to my normal everyday responsibilities, I would go and I would sit by the bedside of somebody, and as I sat by them, I would hear them tell their stories, and I would lock eyes with them, and I would pray with them, and I would let them cry of the devastation and the loss that they had experienced. And imagine the juxtaposition of doing that during the day, and then coming home at night to two precious young girls who are so excited to see their daddy and all they want to do is they want to play and they want to read books and one of the books that our kids just absolutely loved to read at the time was this book by Cater Nelson and it's based on that song he's got the whole world in his hands 
My kids didn't mind that I would sing to them, but I have too much compassion on you this Easter. I'm not going to do that to you. But imagine the contrast of a Hurricane Katrina, the impact of that. And imagine what it was like to whisper to your children that he's got the sun and the rain in his hands, that he's got the oceans and the seas in his hands, that he's got the moon and the stars in his hands, that he's got my brothers and my sisters in his hands, that he's got you and me in his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Do we believe that? Do we believe that there is a risen and a reigning Christ who holds even the very cosmic proportions in his hands? But the last thing that John saw was the most important of all. He saw a face. Not just any face, but the face of one he loves, the face of one he knows, the face of the one that he followed, the face of one that had a crown of thorns and blood dripping down it, but now was a face that was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. A face that he could never forget and that he always longed to be with. A friend of mine by the name of John Flanagan lived in San Antonio with us and John was married to Bev for over 30 years until Beverly had a terminal and terrible form of brain cancer. There was nothing they could do anymore in the hospital, and so they brought Bev home to just to keep her comfortable. They couldn't fit all of the medical equipment and bedding that they needed in their bedroom, and so they took all of their living room furniture and they shoved it to the side, and they not only put Beverly's bed there with all the medical equipment, they also, John had them order a second identical bed for him. If it was good enough for his wife, it was good enough for him. And I went for a visit and I said, John, why don't you sleep in your bed? Why don't you get some rest at night? You've got the extra help and care. You could be fresh for the morning. And he said, oh no, Rich. I don't want to miss a moment where I don't see your face. I made a promise when I married her that I would lay by her side every night. And now as we draw the clothes, I'm going to fulfill that promise. I want to see your face. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face. For now I know only in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The fulfillment of all the promise, of all the longing, it's not depersonalized. It is that one day, one day we will be face to face. Do you see it? Do you see the vision that can help you to keep going even when your world is crumbling around you? And if you see it, the only proper response is to, to fall on your face like the Apostle John, to, to feel the right hand, the very same right hand that held the seven stars, to, to feel that on your back as he says, do not be afraid. I was the first and I am the last. I am the alpha and I am the omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. It is one thing to start something, my friends. It's another thing entirely to finish it. It's one thing to start a marriage. It's another thing to finish it. It's another thing to start a life as it is to finish the life. 
Jesus is a finisher. He's got the keys. And he's going to win. Let's pray. Our loving God and Father, I'm so grateful this day. Grateful that amidst the rubble of our lives, the destruction that we are so often confronted with, I'm grateful that you haven't left us, that you're right here in the middle of us. Thank you, God, that the the work of the priest is done, that your sacrifice is sufficient for us. Thank you that your feet will not be moved, that your loyalty is completely reliable. We're grateful, God, that you hold all of the heavens in your very hands. And I pray that we will have the ability to surrender, to say thank you for holding our life in your hands. God, I pray that you will give the people in this moment of worship a glimpse of your face. Something that was started at Easter long ago that you have made a down payment on and that you will see through. And so we don't have to be afraid. Lord, thank you for having the keys to our lives and that you will be victorious. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
One voice with some volume, yeah? 